Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, suicide, gun violence, and pregnancy complications. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Noma Cavernous screamed. Her contractions were agonizing. She knew childbirth was going to be difficult, especially since this was her first time. But no one said that it may cost her her life. Doctors told her that most likely only she or the baby would leave the hospital alive. To Noma, the birth was a battle between her and her unborn son. Perhaps for hours, two lives hung in the balance. Fortunately, she and the baby both survived. But for the rest of her life, mother and son clashed on everything. Likely because Noma never let her son Dale forget that his birth almost killed her. From birth, Dr. Dale Cavanus's life was parent versus child. It was a dynamic that he continued with his own children. A war that, in some ways, he won. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our final installment of the case of Dr. Dale Cavanus. This Chicago physician may have passed his medical exams, but failed all tests for ethics and parenting. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Dr. John Dale Cavanus, a physician and surgeon in El Dorado, Illinois. While adored by the public, in private, he was an abusive, possibly murderous parent. 
Last week, we discussed Dale's rise to prominence in El Dorado, Illinois, and how he racked up mountains of debt. That debt may have motivated him to kill his son, Mark, in 1977. We also discussed the death of his younger son, Sean, seven years later. This week, we'll follow Sean's murder investigation, where Dale lied time and time again. We'll also cover the court trial that determined his fate, where Dale's own confidence was his downfall. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. In 1984, Dr. Dale Cavanus was drowning in debt. Though he shouldn't have been. A genius physician and surgeon, he had a literal town's worth of adoring patients and a thriving private practice. However, thanks to banned investments and criminal fines, his bank account couldn't get out of the red. Working more wasn't an option. He couldn't perform as many procedures as he used to since developing carpal tunnel. It twisted and distorted his fingers. Dale had to get back on his feet some other way. Years ago, he'd gained about $40,000 in life insurance money from his son Mark's tragic death. The unsolved murder was heartbreaking, but it surely helped pay the bills. Unfortunately, Dale wasn't getting any surprise checks like that anytime soon. However, he did just take out life insurance policies on his three living sons, Kevin, Patrick, and Sean. The tax write-offs alone would help his finances. And who knows, if another son met an untimely death, then those policies would definitely come in handy. Roughly six months later, on December 13, 1984, the sun rose above St. Louis, Missouri. It was a normal, brisk day. A local farmer drove through the morning fog to a pasture until something on the ground caught his eye. A man's lifeless body. His cream-colored shirt was stained with blood. Horrified, the farmer called the police. Not long after, Detective Dave Barron arrived at the scene and examined the body. He found the dead man's pockets empty, signaling that he was probably robbed. With no form of ID, Barron had to rely on fingerprints for identification. The fingerprints would later reveal the victim's identity. 22-year-old Sean Cavanus, the young man who always craved his father's love. At the crime scene, Detective Barron grimaced looking over Sean's remains. His head was bookended by injuries, two bullet wounds on the right side of his head and one exit wound under the left eye. Likely either of the two shots fired would have been enough to kill Sean. It is possible, though, that he may have survived after the first shot, but this depends on a lot of factors. If the bullet took an upward trajectory towards the forehead, for example, and lodged itself in his brain's right frontal lobe, crucial vascular areas would have been spared. Best case scenario, this would have led to severe impairment, but a lot of this depends on a gun's caliber, the bullet's size, and how much damage is inflicted from skull fragments. It's a really awful scenario to think of, Alistair, and while all death is tragic, Sean's was particularly ruthless. 
and it only seemed more ruthless when Detective Barron got the results of the autopsy. Barron learned that Sean's blood alcohol level was 0.26 when he died. At Sean's height and weight, this was enough to make him topple over just trying to walk. However, the autopsy showed that he was standing when the first bullet hit him. It went through the back of the right side of his head. The second shot hit Sean next to the right ear while he was on the ground. Finding out these details was the easy part. Now, with a name and a cause of death, Baron had the horrible task of notifying the family. He started with Sean's brother, Kevin Cavanus. Kevin was understandably shaken as Detective Baron informed him of his brother's death. Tragically, the story was familiar. According to Darcy O'Brien's book, Murder in Little Egypt, Kevin told the detective, I've been through this before. Kevin explained his older brother Mark's death back in April 1977. He was shot and found dead on their father Dale's farm. The lead detective on the case, Special Agent Jack T. Nolan of Illinois' Division of Criminal Investigation, never found the killer. Detective Barron was stunned. The brothers' deaths couldn't just be a tragic coincidence. They had to be connected. He wanted to interview the rest of the Cavanus family to learn more. He asked Kevin to arrange for his father, Dr. Dale Cavanus, to come to Missouri so Barron could meet him. Kevin agreed and went home to grieve his brother. Meanwhile, Detective Barron headed to Sean's apartment, looking for clues. While there, he met Sean's neighbors, Ralph and Peggy Kreck. They thought of Sean as a son and were devastated by the news of his passing. He seemed so happy yesterday. The Krecks told Detective Barron they'd seen Sean's dad, Dale, come to Sean's apartment the night before. They heard Dale and Sean singing and drinking until they left in the middle of the night. The Krecks hadn't seen Sean since. It seemed that Dale was the last person to see Sean alive. Now, Barron had even more reason to talk to him, especially when Dale turned out to be hard to reach. Sean's brother Kevin had been calling Dale since he learned about Sean's death with no answer. Hours later, Dale finally picked up. He'd already heard the news from Kevin's mother, Marion. Still, Dale agreed to come to Kevin's the next day. Kevin hung up, then told Detective Barron to come at the same time. But when the time came, Dale was MIA. Kevin and his wife, Charlie, waited all day for him to arrive. At 6 p.m., they called Dale's girlfriend, who said Dale spent the day at his practice or at the hospital seeing patients. The tragic pause most people feel after a son's death seemed lost on Dale. If we try to give Dale the benefit of the doubt, being a doctor does involve putting your patients above yourself, especially in life or death circumstances. It's definitely possible that a surgeon wouldn't be able to take a leave of absence, like in the event that a patient needed emergency surgery and a replacement doctor wasn't readily available. However, given that Dale had his own practice, he should have been able to get away since hospitals are required to have surgeons on call for these emergency situations. 
On the other hand, if Dale's carpal tunnel was really severe, as his misshapen fingers indicated, it would make sense that his surgical hours and schedule would have been reduced. The wrist, hand, and finger pain from the compression of his median nerve, which defines a carpal tunnel syndrome, would have required breaks and lapses during the day, giving him at least some time to check in with Kevin and Detective Barron. Considering all of this, it seems strange and suspicious that Dale would stay at work instead of seeing his family after Sean's death. It took another couple of hours for Dale to arrive at Kevin's and meet Detective Barron. Knowing that Dale was a big-shot doctor, Barron worried that Dale would talk circles around him. However, seeing Dale in the flesh eased his worry. Nearing 60 years old, Dale wasn't an imposing figure. He was bloated, with thinning, dirty hair, and clothes that looked second-hand. But still, he was as charming as ever. Dale offered Baron a drink. He'd already started. Baron declined and began interviewing Dale. But instead of asking about Sean, Baron traveled back in time and asked about Mark's murder. Confused, Dale said Mark's death was officially deemed an accident. Kevin jumped in to correct his father. Seven years may have passed, but it was still an open case. Nobody thought it was an accident. Detective Barron watched Dale carefully, wondering if Kevin's interjection threw him off guard. It was an odd detail to be mistaken about, but Dale didn't flinch. So Barron jumped right to his most important question. When was the last time that he saw Sean? Dale thought about it for a second. He eventually replied, It was four weeks ago. Baron kept his composure. He didn't want Dale to realize that he'd cornered himself. Instead, he sat back and listened as Dale emphasized how distraught he was about Sean's death. Dale told Baron that he should see if drugs were involved in Sean's passing. Baron agreed perhaps only to make Dale believe he was in the clear. The more confident Dale was, the more likely he'd slip up eventually. He would let Dale sit with his version of events for the night and catch him later. After talking to Dale, Detective Barron called Special Agent Jack Nolan, the detective in charge of Mark's investigation. Agent Nolan confirmed that Mark's case was still open. Nolan also told Barron about the life insurance policy Dale took out on Mark just months before he passed. Nolan cursed how he could never get any evidence to stick to the doctor. Both detectives agreed. Dr. Dale Cavanus was extremely suspicious. And it was very possible he'd killed two of his own sons. While the detectives racked their brains for evidence to back up their hunches, Dr. Dale himself tried to smooth things over with his second son. He reminded Kevin about the fatal drunk driving accident Dale was in years ago. Maybe the victim's family murdered Sean for revenge, or maybe it was the same person who killed Mark. Kevin said he didn't think either were the case. The two men continued to grieve the loss, but Dale's concern about Sean's death was short-lived. The next day, Kevin reminisced aloud about his brother. Dale stayed silent as Kevin talked about how loving and generous Sean was. Then, Dale chimed in, saying, 
Let's not make Sean into something he was not. He was an embarrassment to me. Kevin couldn't believe his father's hostility. This was the heartless side of Dale he kept hidden from the town of El Dorado. A side Dale would keep hiding for months. Coming up, Dr. Dale Cavanus continues to evade Detective Baron. Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. A day after Sean Cavanagh's murder in December 1984, Detective Dave Barron had narrowed in on a prime suspect, Sean's father, Dr. Dale Cavanagh. The detective knew Dale saw Sean the night before his body was found. Dale, however, claimed he hadn't seen his son in four weeks. And the mysterious unsolved murder of Sean's brother Mark only made the detective's hunch grow stronger. Hoping for answers, Detective Barron attended Sean's funeral in St. Louis, Missouri. He hid in the back of the chapel, away from Sean's family and friends. From there, he could keep an eye on Dale. Dale sobbed throughout the Reverend's eulogy. Barron thought his tears were a shockingly good performance. What astonished him even more was Dale's sudden switch outside of the chapel. It was like he was at a party. His tears were barely dry as he shook hands and laughed with others. When Dale saw Barron, he introduced him to everyone as the best damn detective in St. Louis. He was absolutely going to catch Sean's killer. Barron accepted the praise and left the funeral without falling for Dale's charm. He'd prove the doctor right, show him he really was the best damn detective. Just before 5 p.m. the next day, Dale left Kevin's apartment to head back to Illinois. As he drove past the funeral parlor, red and blue police lights appeared in his rearview mirror. Dale pulled over and found Detective Barron walking out of the cop car. He was likely relieved they'd been getting along great. But Barron was done pretending that he and Dale were friends. He ordered Dale to get out of the car and arrested him. Dale didn't put up a fight. At the police department, Barron brought Dale to a small, dark interrogation room. Dale waived his right to an attorney and offered to help the investigation in any way possible. Barron was sick of Dale's helpful citizen act. He finally let Dale in on what he knew. The neighbors saw Dale and Sean together on December 12th. Hours later, 
Sean's body was found. The jig was up, but Dale stuck to his story. The neighbors couldn't have seen him. He was working all day in Illinois. Baron pressed Dale further. He made Dale go over his story for hours, looking for any inconsistencies. It was a battle of wills. Eventually, Dale realized the only way to end Baron's constant questioning was to alter his strategy. Dale admitted that he'd been lying. The reason? He didn't want to be a suspect. When Baron asked why Dale thought he'd be suspected, Dale didn't have an answer other than, it just seemed logical. As for the real story, Dale said that he did visit Sean's St. Louis apartment late that night. They drank until they left for cigarettes around 1.30 a.m. Then Dale dropped Sean back off at his apartment and drove home. Dale's new story didn't make Baron suspect him any less. The detective had Dale go through this new story several times. As the night went on, he had Dale undergo a lie detector test, during which Dale confused Mark's and Sean's deaths. The polygraph technician ended the test truly disturbed, but unfortunately, the test didn't reveal anything that would solve the case. Detective Barron was in trouble. He was sure Dale killed Sean, but he couldn't figure out a clear motive. Soon, he'd have to let Dale go. It was around 8 a.m. Barron had a little over four hours left on the clock. He called Dale's son and daughter-in-law, Kevin and Charlie Cavanus, down to the station. Maybe they knew something he didn't. Coming to the station, Kevin didn't understand why Barron suspected Dale. But once Barron explained Dale's outright lies, Kevin didn't trust his father either. And he had a guess for Dale's motive, Sean's life insurance. Kevin explained about the life insurance policies he and his brothers had recently signed. Detective Barron had no idea Dr. Dale was the beneficiary of Sean's life insurance policy. And Kevin had no idea about the insurance payout Dale got for Mark. When Barron told him about it, Kevin faced a chilling revelation. Dale might have killed Mark, too. And if that was true, his father might be planning to kill him next. At this, Kevin's wife Charlie remembered a terrifying incident. Years earlier, they stayed in one of Dale's trailers over Thanksgiving. One morning, Kevin and Charlie woke up to the smell of gas. The fumes filled the entire trailer, making Charlie ill. The trailer door was unlocked and all four burners on their gas stove were turned on, unlit. They'd been breathing in noxious gas while they slept. Sleeping in a trailer with gas burners on all night is extremely dangerous because it presents a huge risk of lethal carbon monoxide poisoning. A large concentration of carbon monoxide can kill an otherwise healthy adult in minutes, and frankly, it's a miracle Kevin and Charlie survived this. Perhaps a window was open somewhere or the trailer was extremely drafty. Either way, they managed to dodge death. Upon inhalation, carbon monoxide gas passes into the bloodstream and binds to hemoglobin molecules, which feed our vital organs with oxygen. 
Eventually, after enough of the gas has been inhaled, these hemoglobin molecules become so coated that they can no longer function, ultimately causing a loss of consciousness, brain death, and cardiac arrest. As for Charlie's nausea, it's common for people with carbon monoxide poisoning to experience shortness of breath or stomach discomfort before losing consciousness or passing out. This is an indicator that the carbon monoxide was taking a progressive effect on Charlie and likely Kevin as well. Given Dale's medical background, he would have known exactly what he was doing here. When the couple told Dale about the burners, he implied that they probably bumped into them, turning them on by mistake, and they probably forgot to lock the trailer door too. Now, in 1984, the memory shook the couple to their core. They knew that they locked the trailer before going to bed. Dale was the only other person who had a key. With this chilling new information in hand, Detective Barron returned to Dale's interrogation room and asked him about the insurance policies on his sons. Dale claimed that he never paid the policies premiums. Plus, they didn't apply to Sean anyway because of Sean's drinking problem. They were worthless. If this was true, Barron's hunch about Dale's motive was crumbling. By now, it was about 11 a.m. He'd have to let Dale go in two hours. Mind spinning, he went back to Kevin and Charlie in his office. Kevin was terrified. He feared his and his wife's safety if Dale went free. Working quickly, Detective Barron and Kevin split up to find out if Dale was telling the truth about skipping the payments. Kevin had copies of the policy paperwork at his office. He had a colleague read it to him over the phone. Meanwhile, Barron called Nolan and asked him to talk to Dale's insurance agent. Barron himself got in touch with the head of the insurance company. They went over Dale's account. All three found the truth. The life insurance policies were paid in full. And it did, in fact, cover Sean. Nolan also learned about two additional policies out on Sean. With all three in total, Dale's payout was $140,000. With an hour to spare, they had all they needed to charge Dr. Dale Cavanus with life insurance fraud and murder of the first degree. He was brought to a jail in Clayton, Missouri. Even with this damning evidence, Dale wasn't giving up. Sitting in jail, he formed his most startling story yet. Dale's jail cell window faced Clayton's town Christmas displays. It was a prosperous city, a trait that Dale always wished for himself, but he was behind bars, still in incredible debt. Maybe he thought that being an affluent doctor was still possible. He'd be able to use Sean's insurance money if he was free. This could be why, on Christmas Eve, he wanted to speak to Detective Barron once again. They entered the interrogation room Presumably, Dale was finally ready to tell the whole truth. He told Barron that he didn't bring Sean home after they got cigarettes. They drove around Missouri all night, and as the sun came up, Sean wanted to stop by the countryside. It reminded him of Illinois, of home. They stopped near a farm. Sean got out of the car and looked over the fields. He asked Dale for his gun. 
He didn't know why Sean wanted it, but he handed him a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum. The last thing he heard Sean say was, Tell Mom I'm sorry. According to Dale, Sean shot himself in the head. Dale rushed to his son's body as it fell to the ground. He was dead instantly. Dale thought of Sean's mother, Marion, at that moment. She wouldn't be able to handle the thought of Sean dying by suicide. To save her from the tragic reality, Dale picked up the gun and shot his son in the back right side of his head. He then took Sean's wallet and keys. He wanted it to look like a robbery gone wrong. Marion could handle that, he thought. Then he left his son's bloodied body on the ground. In the interrogation room, Dale gave Detective Barron a map to find Sean's belongings, which he'd hidden on his farm in El Dorado, Illinois. He insisted that this time he was telling the truth. Dale talked about shooting Sean's dead body as if it was the right moral thing to do. The whole account horrified Detective Barron. But Barron also knew that Dale's story was a lie. For one thing, the autopsy stated that the first shot was the one behind the right side of Sean's head, not the second, like Dale said. It also showed that Sean was standing when the bullet hit him, not already lying on the ground. Furthermore, the other bullet that hit Sean next to his ear entered his body at an extremely odd angle. Dale said that Sean shot this bullet himself. However, it was nearly physically impossible for Sean to aim the gun that way, especially considering Sean was drunk. Alcohol can drastically affect motor functions, making it hard to believe that Sean could shoot himself at such a complicated angle. On the other hand, Sean had a drinking problem, and chronic alcoholics can develop a tolerance over a long period of abuse. This is because our brains eventually adapt to compensate for the amount of alcohol exposure, making us need more and more over time. This is also largely a function of the brain's alcohol receptors becoming dulled from overactivation, which then signals us to up the amount of consumption to experience the desired effects. As such, it could have been that Sean's tolerance rendered him capable enough to fire the shot in question. However, it's really hard to say and leans towards unlikely. This scenario that Dale proposed, where he fired on his son after the initial shot, seems far-fetched, and not to mention sickening. While he didn't believe Dale, Detective Barron had to do his due diligence. The day after Christmas, he drove down to El Dorado, Illinois, to find Sean's belongings. There, he learned that even a mountain of evidence couldn't bring down the good doctor's image. Coming up, Dale is brought to court. Now, back to the story. In December 1984, Detective Dave Barron was looking at a map. Drawn by Dr. Dale Cavanus, the map was supposed to show where Dale hid his son Sean's belongings after staging his suicide to look like a mugging gone wrong. At least, that's what Dr. Dale claimed. Detective Barron had a hunch Dale had murdered his own son, but the only way to prove it was to follow the map and search Dale's farm in El Dorado, Illinois. In El Dorado, 
Barron met up with Special Agent Jack Nolan, the head of Mark Cavanagh's murder investigation. Dr. Dale's older son's death remained unsolved. Nolan gave Barron a ride to Dale's farm. The media had started reporting on Dale's arrest and, in the car, Barron asked Nolan about the town's reaction. As Nolan drove, he explained how the people of El Dorado believed Barron made up the evidence. The community was even raising $40,000 for Dale's defense fund. They believed that there was no way that Dr. Dale, who saved so many lives without taking a penny in return, killed Sean. One person told Nolan that, while they didn't believe it, if Dale did do it, then Sean likely had it coming. Barron shook his head. How could the people of El Dorado be so blind? It disturbed him, but not as much as what they found on Dale's property. The detectives followed Dale's map to a storage unit on the farm. Underneath a heap of rubble was a white plastic bag. It contained Sean's jacket, wallet, and keys. Then, they found the pistol that killed him. With Sean's belongings in his hands, Baron's stomach turned. He knew better than the people of El Dorado. Dale was guilty. He hoped a jury would think so too. The trial began in July 1985 at the St. Louis County Courthouse in Clayton, Missouri. Having lost weight in jail, Dr. Dale was now a ghastly man who'd seen better days. Next to the doctor was Arthur Margulis, one of Missouri's best defense attorneys. Margulis thought that this would be an easy case to win. There was no way a jury would believe the beloved doctor killed his own son for money. Margulis's presence gave Detective Barron pause. He knew that Margulis was a master lawyer. This trial was going to be a showdown one with a passionate audience outside the ring. Sitting in the court's gallery were Dale's ex-wife Marion, his son Kevin, and daughter-in-law Charlie, who was six months pregnant with her and Kevin's first child. Surrounding them were Dale's supportive patients who saw the family as Judases to Dale's Messiah. Before long, the state's lawyer called Kevin to the stand. Kevin told the jury how Dale lied about paying the life insurance premiums and about his debt. But Kevin's demeanor was his most convincing factor. He was furious. The jury saw that even the doctor's family believed he was guilty. Across the courtroom, Dale stared at Kevin with hateful eyes. By the end of his testimony, Kevin finally knew for sure. Dale wanted to kill him. Dale's icy glare only intensified when Marion was on the stand. Marion recalled calling Dale to tell him about Sean's death and how he immediately hung up. In Marion's own words, his patients loved him, apparently, but he didn't have any use for us. The prosecution lawyer also detailed how the autopsy disproved Dale's story. The state's case was proving to be incredibly strong until the jury examined the evidence themselves. Amongst Sean's clothing and Dale's gun were Dale's lie detector results. Seeing them, the prosecution's face went pale. The results were brought in by mistake. 
Missouri courts didn't allow lie detector tests to be used as evidence since they were not always accurate. It could unfairly sway the jury. For this, the judge issued a mistrial, ending the current trial without a verdict. It was a disheartening blow to the family, especially since the jury told the press that they planned to vote guilty. The new trial was set for November. While frustrated, Kevin and Charlie were glad it would be after their baby was due. They were nervous that the stress of the trial had been bad for Charlie's pregnancy. At least the baby would be born before they'd have to do it again. On September 27, 1985, Charlie gave birth to a baby girl named Kelly Ann Cavanus. However, she was tragically stillborn. Kevin and Charlie held each other in the hospital. It had been nearly 10 months since Sean died, and now this. Kellyanne was meant to be a sign that things were changing. Once Dale was in prison and she was born, tragedy would stop following the family. Now, Kevin felt that they were cursed. Death would always follow the Cavernous clan. Combined with the trauma of Sean's death, Charlie believed that the trial drained the life from Kellyanne. She was their last chance to be happy. There are many factors that can result in a stillborn birth, which is when a fetus dies beyond the 20-week mark of a mother's pregnancy. While about a third of these deaths in the United States are unexplained, some known contributing causes include problems with the umbilical cord and placenta, vaginal bacterial infections that migrate to the womb, and developmental birth defects, which account for about 25% of all stillbirths. Mothers with blood pressure and clotting issues, autoimmune diseases, and substance abuse problems are also at a higher risk. It's possible that Charlie's stress may have contributed to some underlying issues in her pregnancy, as the increased cortisol in her bloodstream would have agitated a developing fetus's nervous system. Without knowing her complete medical history, we're unable to determine what exactly killed Kellyanne, but the stress of the trial certainly didn't help her chances. Kevin and Charlie grieved their little girl. And unfortunately, with their emotions still raw, they entered court again less than two months later on November 14th, 1985. To prove Dale's story about Sean's death by suicide, his defense lawyer questioned Marion and Kevin on Sean's mental health. Dale's lawyer, Arthur Margulis, was one of the best. But even he couldn't fight the hard evidence. The autopsy without a doubt ruled out suicide. To further support that, the prosecution called a new forensic expert to the stand, Dr. George Gantner. He was St. Louis's chief medical examiner, world-renowned in his field. Dr. Gantner reiterated to the jury how it would be nearly impossible for Sean to have shot himself at the angle described, especially while intoxicated. Dale fidgeted in his seat as Margulis cross-examined Dr. Gantner. Margulis was a skilled lawyer, but he was not a doctor. Dale felt that this meant Margulis couldn't comprehend the medical jargon Dr. Gantner was using. Dale called Margulis back toward him. They argued in hushed tones until Margulis seemed to relent. In a move that astonished the court, Margulis paused his questioning. 
he reluctantly had a request for the judge on Dale's behalf. Could Dale cross-examine Dr. Gantner? The prosecution's attorney, and even Margulis himself, thought it was a ludicrous idea. However, Dale insisted. As a medical professional, he'd be able to ask Dr. Gantner the right questions. The judge allowed Dale's request. The ever-confident Dale, master of schmoozing El Dorado, knew he could save his case. He stepped up to the stand, ready to showboat his knowledge. But it was quickly obvious that he was ill-prepared to go head-to-head with another genius. Dale challenged Gantner on ballistics, but Gantner time and time again corrected him on vocabulary and scientific ballistic facts. During his questioning, Dale held Sean's crime scene and autopsy photos, talking about them coldly and dispassionately. The jury watched Dale point at the picture, at the dried blood on his son's face. The photos of Sean's lifeless body likely disturbed them, but it wasn't disturbing his own father. This didn't surprise the Cavanagh's family. They knew Dale saw his sons as embarrassments and cash grabs. He didn't see his dead son in those photos. He saw a way to talk himself out of jail. Eventually, Dale finished his questioning. It was up to the jurors now. Two and a half hours later, they reached their verdict. All 12 jurors agreed. Guilty of first-degree murder. Dale's supporters gasped. The town hero was beaten. And not only was he beaten, he was sentenced to death in a gas chamber. Dale didn't show any emotion as he heard the verdict. He reportedly only tightened his lips when he heard he was going to die. But Dale still didn't seem to grasp the gravity of his crimes. While on death row, Dale tried to sue the life insurance company. Even though he killed Sean, he felt that he was still owed the payout. He was unsuccessful. Just months later, on November 17, 1986, a prison guard found Dale's lifeless body. He had died by suicide. But even in death, Dale was still getting won over the insurance companies. His own life insurance had a clause that said suicide would render his policy void. That clause expired on November 16th. Since Dale waited that extra day, the policy was in full effect and $198,000 was to be paid to his girlfriend. Life insurance policies often contain a suicide clause as a way of preventing someone from taking their own life immediately after starting on a new insurance plan. While these clauses may expire after a number of years, they're reinstated every time someone takes out a new policy. These companies have free reign to look at all of an applicant's physical and mental health records. This is a way for these insurance providers to max out an applicant's rates in order to cover their bottom line. 
Doctors consulting for these companies consider everything they possibly can to augment higher rates, and they're incentivized to consider an applicant's physical and mental health with equal weight. It is true that the mind impacts physical health, and people with mental health disorders are also more prone to accidents. Dale took advantage of the system here yet again by killing himself right after his policy suicide clause ended. It's really just an extension of his long history of cheating insurance carriers. After all his scams with life insurance, Dale's suicide was checkmate in his own game. He may not have gotten Sean's payout, but he got Mark's, and his girlfriend got his. Nothing from his policy was left to his living children. From the day they were born till the day he died, Dale's children were never on the forefront of his mind. While he might have been a generous and beloved doctor, he was certainly a horrific father. It's also an astonishing grim reminder that a patient and their family can go to a doctor for decades without ever truly knowing anything about them. It's a scary reality that exists in all domains of service and business, but there's something more sinister when it comes to someone responsible for your physical and mental well-being. To me, this was one of our most disturbing episodes yet. The way Dale treated his children goes against every loving parental instinct, and the relationship he had with his mother must have been a catalyst for the evil he committed. It's interesting, Alistair. Dr. Cavanagh cared so much about his patients and their right to receive affordable health care, but he thought so little of the lives closest to him. This was never more clear than on the night of Sean's death. Pretending to come over to enjoy his son's company, Dale got Sean too drunk to stand, took him to a secluded location, and shot him twice in the head. All for the money. And while it's never been officially proven that Dr. Dale killed Mark, the lurking suspicion has forever labeled him the culprit. Still, as of 2015, there were people in El Dorado who believed he was innocent, proving that Dr. John Dale Cavanagh's relationships with his patients were the only successful ones he had. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair. For more information on Dr. John Dale Cavanagh, among the many sources we used, we found Murder in Little Egypt, the true story of a father's ultimate betrayal by Darcy O'Brien, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 